I'll apologize in advance for a cough and some congestion. Um, if you will pretend like you don't notice when I cough or have any kind of reaction, I'll not cough on you after the service and give you whatever I've got. Um, so I hope we have a deal. message this morning is a continuation of a series that I started, and since I don't get a whole lot of opportunities to preach in this pulpit, uh, many of you may not remember the last time it was, but we started two weeks of a study in the book of Mark many months ago. Uh, we're going to be there mostly today. You've already seen readings, heard readings, and, and participated in readings from the book of Isaiah talking about things that we're going to look at here in Mark. Um, at that time, I introduced to you the gospel of Mark as the first gospel, and in fact, Mark was the initiator of the genre known as the gospel, uh, and so he was the first gospel writer, probably writing under the tutelage of Peter, having known many of the apostles and other early believers, worked with Paul. Uh, he was the same Mark that Paul said, we're not taking him with us anymore to Barnabas, and he and Barnabas split over it. Uh, Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took Silas. And so we saw at that first message where God said the theme was, don't throw that away. Uh, God had plans for, <clears throat> plans for John Mark and did not cast him away, even though Paul at that time had. Paul later in his life said that he had become valuable to him, and they were reconciled on some level, praise God. Um, we saw the John the Baptist, the forerunner, the Elijah to come. Uh, we saw him in the, in the next message, and today we'll pick up in Mark 1, verse 9, and we'll read down through uh, verse 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, <coughs> You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the title of this message is, Why is the Gospel Gospel? You all know that the word gospel is a single word for the phrase good news. So why is the gospel good news? I think we all know on some level, probably every six-year-old child in this building today could give us some semblance of an idea why the gospel is the gospel. And it's probably fair enough to say that this passage could be looked at from any one of ten dozen angles. But I was excited to preach this message because of Jesus' words in those last couple of verses. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Of this gospel, Paul had much to write. And in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he was chiding the Galatians for having turned away from the gospel. And he was beside himself over it. <clears throat> he said, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, which is to be damned. Paul is using the strongest language. If anyone comes to you and teaches you a different gospel than what I have taught, then he is to be damned. 
He is not to be given voice or patience or worked with. He is to be utterly condemned. Such strong language from the apostle should make us stop and ponder what we really know about the gospel. And if you had to stop and list everything that you could about the gospel, how far would it go? I know that many of us would turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried, and three days later he arose again according to the scriptures. But that is not a complete picture of the gospel. So many facets we could look at, and so I'm going to point out a few, certainly not exhaustive this morning. But looking at this passage, I want you to consider what was going on there. John the Baptist was the Elijah to come, and he was a rough character. He dressed roughly, had a leather belt, wore sackcloth. He was eating. Uh, He was a rough guy, very much in the vein of Elijah. But he also seemed to be fearless. He called out the religious establishment as vipers, asked them who who uh, warned them to flee from the wrath to come. And he was out at the Jordan River, and the Bible tells us that all Jerusalem was going out to see him. So he was a popular guy in one sense, may have been an an odd uh, curiosity in many ways, but the common people were going out and hearing his message, and he was saying to repent and be baptized. Um. The Bible tells us here that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. That reflects back on what we heard this morning as James read from Isaiah 9, but there will be no no gloom for, excuse me, I guess we read that as part of our affirmation. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt through the Assyrian invasion as they destroyed the northern ten tribes, the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. (coughs) This was Jesus coming to redeem the land of of Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus of Galilee, that's the same area, that section just west of the Sea of Galilee, a little north, a little south, all but just that eastern quarter there. And Jesus comes to John, who is calling Jews to repentance. Now that may not sound like a big deal to you, But to a Jew in the first century, for them to be called to baptism and repentance would have been a scandal. It was scandalous because Jews didn't need to be cleansed. They weren't called to repentance and baptism, typically. Only proselytes were. Gentiles who came into the nation, who were brought in as proselytes and converted to Judaism, they would be baptized. They would be called to repentance, but not a Jew. A Jew was considered to be a person that belonged in God's family by his birthright. He had the bloodline of Abraham and needed not to repent. Father Abraham, as his father, made God also his father. But why did John call Jews to repentance and baptism? We've reached what we've read here, the fullness of time. It was a crisis in history had come. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was at hand. It was not some far millennial, millennium away. It was here and now. It was happening immediately. And the people needed to get ready. And as Jesus came with all the throngs of people, all Jerusalem going out to see John the Baptist and hear his message, and so many of them being baptized and repenting of sins, And people pushing and shoving and all the dirt and the sand and the heat and the stench of that many people in an arid climate like that. John sees one coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world, and he points out this Jesus. People had begun to get to know Jesus a little bit at this time, but John was the preeminent speaker at that time. And the common people welcomed John's message, but the scribes and the Pharisees were offended at it. As Mark tells us a little later in chapter 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, you scribes and Pharisees, but those who are sick, the common people. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so it was with compassion that John and later on Jesus would reach out to the people, calling them to repentance. But then we see that when Jesus came, he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And this brings us the question, why would Jesus be baptized by John? Mark doesn't bother with the question, but the other Gospels provide insight. So we look at Matthew 3, 14 and 15. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. You see, Jesus' ministry was vicarious from one end to the other. It wasn't just a vicarious death. It was also a vicarious life. We'll have more to say about that later. But his death on the cross, as scandalous as this may sound to your ears, was insufficient in and of of itself for our redemption. He not only had to die, but he had to live. He had to have a perfect life that he could apply to you vicariously before the Father. He had to live and die on our behalf to fulfill all righteousness. So in the right context, we can confidently assert that salvation is indeed by works, but not ours, by the works of Christ, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. Salvation is by and through the person and work of Jesus Jesus had to vicariously be baptized on our behalf, even as a perfect sinless vessel, in order to fulfill all righteousness, to stand before the Father one day and say, you're mine. Father, your wrath does not abide on this. Here's my perfect life. Here's my perfect death. Here's my resurrection. This one is mine. And so we see here, When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And so at that point, we see the anointed Christ. Jesus had to fulfill all all righteousness. And in the process of doing so, we see his anointing. He comes up out of the water. And the spirit descends like a dove. I don't know if that is in form or if it's merely in fashion, but the spirit descends on him like a dove and anoints him. And Mark's point in writing all of this is threefold. Number one, the spirit empowered Jesus' human nature, not his divine nature. He never gave that up. He laid aside his glory, but he remained divine the whole time. But he was fully God and fully man. And the significance of the Spirit was the anointing of the human nature of Jesus with the power to fulfill all righteousness. See, a lot of times we think, well, Jesus did miracles, of course, because he was divine. He had a divine nature. But Jesus didn't do miracles with his divine nature. Jesus did miracles in the power of the Spirit. He did it in the power of the Spirit in his human nature by submission to the Father, much like the apostles did later and the prophets had done before. So the Spirit empowered Jesus' human nature to do the things he did. Secondly, the Father declared 
the sonship of Jesus. The Father declared the sonship of Jesus. Mark writes to tell us of the Father's testimony of Jesus' sonship. He writes to tell us that the Father audibly spoke one of very few times in the New Testament that the voice of God is heard. And he says, before all who were there, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. And the crowd heard it, and John heard it, and the people around it around around that situation heard it, and it's recorded in the Gospels for us to believe. Thirdly, it revealed the Trinity, the us of creation. In Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And so John, excuse me, Mark writes to reveal the Trinity and to demonstrate to all that Jesus is part of the us of creation, by whom all things today even still consist. The word of his power allows atoms to stay together, allows your heart to keep beating, allows your lungs to keep breathing, by whom all the planets orbit the way they're told to. By him, the power of all things consists. It's by him that time continues. It's by him that one day time will end. Now, I want to step back just for one moment because I don't want to confuse you about the spirit empowering Jesus' human nature. There are heretics out there who would teach you that at this point is when Jesus, the man, became Jesus the Christ. That's not true. Jesus is eternally the Christ, the Messiah. He's always been the Christ, but he did so many things for our sake so that we might see them. There's a man named Richard Rohr who's a heretic. He believes in panentheism, which is that all creation is in God and has Christ. Others who go by similar teachings, Rob Bell, Bart Campolo, there's many others heretics out there, a group of deconstructionists who have walked away. They're ex-evangelicals, I guess you would call them have walked away from the faith and have deconstructed, they call it, the Gospels. But the Father's affirmation here is sufficient. This is my Son. In Him I am pleased. Later on, He would tell the apostles, hear Him. But it's critical to our understanding of what follows. Just as Christ's baptism and revelation of the Trinity reminds us of His work in creation, So his temptation contrasts the failure of the first Adam with the conquest of the last. And so we see that immediately, that word that Mark uses 40 some odd times in his gospel, immediately when he's coming up out of the water, the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. I find it very interesting what Mark includes here and what he excludes. We're used to hearing about the temptations. Turn these stones to bread. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. If you'll just worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And of course, Jesus passed all those tests. But for whatever reason, Mark leaves those out. He merely tells us that he goes out in the wilderness. He doesn't even tell us that he was fasting. He was just in the wilderness 40 days being tempted. He does tell us, however, he was with the wild animals and that angels ministered to him. The other gospels clarify that the ministering of the angels came at the very end, and so he had no ministering in between. But Jesus in this situation defeated Satan. And in this we see the testing of Christ. We see his temptation. And in looking at the dissimilarities between the first Adam and the second, we should note a number of things. The first Adam came and was given a garden. He was given a job, and his labor wasn't work. It was pleasant. Everything was perfect. Plenty of food. Hardly had to do anything to get it. Jesus was in the wilderness. 
was nothing but sand and heat. He had no food. Adam, the first Adam, had companionship, a loving wife that he had relations with. Jesus was alone. He was solitary. He had no support, no one to turn to, no physical person. In the garden, Adam was surrounded by paradise. He had, he was given a task to name all the animals. Jesus, by contrast, was surrounded by the wild animals. There were dangers at every turn, things that could kill men and would, except for God protected him. But that's where perhaps the dissimilarities end, and we can look at the similarities. To the first Adam, technically Eve, Satan says, has God said you can't eat of any of these trees in the garden? Calling into question what God had said. And to the last Adam, Satan says, if you are the Son of God. I know you're hungry, and certainly God the Father would have no problem with you having something to eat. Here's stones. Surely you're capable if you're the Son of God. And so if you're the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Have something to eat. Surely your good Father wouldn't begrudge you that. Of course, Jesus, the last thing he heard before he went into the wilderness was what? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Knowing that he had been affirmed by the father, Jesus passed the test that Adam, the first Adam, had failed. But then we see that he's not only surrounded by these wild animals and they didn't touch him yet, He was, at the end, ministered to by angels. So we see him at the the baptism being affirmed by the Father. And then out in the wilderness, we see him as the king of angels. Those ministering spirits came because he was their king too. So Jesus is son, the submissive son, and Jesus, the king of angels, not sure that we can fully understand the stress of Christ's temptation. It's probably vastly underestimated. You think about how hungry he would have been during the course of 40 days. He's in the wilderness in a dry, arid place, certainly thirsty much of the time, certainly dirty, tired, sunburnt perhaps, growing weaker every day. He was lonely. He had no human companionship there with him. No disciples. Never once in 40 days of intense temptation by Satan himself did he falter. When I read that and started thinking about it, it it occurred to me, what am I tempted by? So let me ask you, what are you tempted by? Jesus, all this time on our behalf, never once faltered. He didn't face down one of Satan's demons, but Satan himself. He had a full frontal assault all alone in a terrible wilderness and had no support. We have accountability that saves us from a lot of pain. What are you tempted by? By fear? Are you afraid when the Lord has promised that all things work together for good? When you love him, do you have lust problems, pornography problems? Are you angry? Perhaps covetousness. Does covetousness interfere with your daily life? Does it cause you to want things that God has decided you don't need? I've given those things to other people. We have a a culture of covetousness. In fact, our Political parties are built around a whole culture of covetousness. They promise you things that you don't have that they tell you they can give you because you covet them. 
And then you vote for them to get what God has said, I'm not giving you yet. And then the parties never pay off either. Slothfulness. Are you lazy? Are you willing to put off to tomorrow, which you should be doing today? How about your tongue? Are you sharp-tongued? Are you bitter? Do your, do your words spew venom? Selfishness? Do you think first of what you want? My wife and I have laughed over the years that she used to make the coffee a certain way. I don't remember which one it was now. We're just the same person anymore. But she liked it stronger or weaker, one or the other. And at some point in time, she finally repented and decided to make it the way I like it. And now we like it the same way, so it's okay. But previously, she was selfish about the thing. And you know what? So was I. Because when I made the coffee, I made it the way I liked it. It's a silly illustration, but it's just a small illustration of how we can be selfish over the silliest little things. Are you selfish? When you're tempted, how do you do? Are you reliant on the Spirit to say no? Like, like uh, uh, Joseph, who said to Potiphar's wife, how can I do this and sin against God? Or do you give in? Indulge your flesh. Bemoan what you don't have. Look at that one more computer screen. With the anointing of Jesus, the Father's endorsement of his sonship, and his defeat of Satan's temptations accomplished, we continue to resolve the question we started with. Why is the gospel gospel? Well, Jesus here continues by offering reconciliation. And this is the message of Christ. It says now in verse 14, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now this idea of gospel is far goes far, much further than we could possibly learn in a week of Sundays. But I want to just point out to a few things. There's three basic uses of the word gospel. Euangelion. It's good news. So when we use the term a eulogy, we're talking about saying a good word about somebody who is could be alive, but mostly de- dead. Mostly we think of a eulogy as somebody has passed away, and now we're going to say a good word about them. But the three general uses are, first of all, literary, where Mark, as we've observed, created this new genre, and the four Gospels would be this literary form. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would be the literary form of the Gospel. Secondly, we see all throughout the Old Testament, the Gospel is the announcement of a kingdom, not just a kingdom, but that is the primary focus of it in the Old Testament. And then finally, thirdly, the gospel is about the person and work of Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with a personal testimony, and if you witness to your friends and your neighbors by telling them what Jesus did in your life, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the gospel. The gospel tells about this Jesus, his work, his life, Death, burial, resurrection, ascension. His kingship over this kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. The investiture of Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords at his ascension. The promised one by the prophets. The affirmation that Jesus is the Christ and our Lord. But notice that he says that Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. Um, Some of your translations, if you have some of the older translations, may see of the kingdom of God. There are textual variants, and we do have latitude to say it could be one or the other. Uh, Bodies of manuscripts would say that it's about 50-50. 
Um, I side with those that, uh, whose feet I sit at regularly who believe that the, the right translation is the one that's in, in our English Standard Version, and most translations, frankly, that it is the gospel of God. Very much like in Romans, where Paul said that he came uh, preaching the gospel of God. And what this, the distinction is that the, the latter is that it is not just about God. Rather, the, the language means that this is God's gospel. This is the Father's gospel. It is authored and owned by God the Father. And so Jesus came preaching the gospel belonging to the Father. The gospel belongs to the Father. We see also that he says he came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew, we see that he uses the word kingdom of heaven. And just as an aside, I'll mention to you that the other gospels being written to Gentiles in many ways (coughs) talked about the kingdom of God. Matthew, writing to Jews and being a good Jew, does not speak the name of God. Instead, he characterizes it as the kingdom of heaven, but it's the same thing. There's a common and, I'll say, false theology out there that says there's a kingdom of God and a kingdom of heaven, and one belongs to this people and the other belongs to that. That is not the teaching of Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is that one writer used kingdom of heaven because he didn't use the name of God, and another writer used kingdom of God to talk about the same event. They overlap. There's no distinction between the two. When you read Kingdom of Heaven in Matthew, you're reading the same thing as the other Gospels, as Kingdom of God. And as we stop just for a moment to talk about heretics a moment ago, I want to mention uh, another growing group of people called the Deconstructionists. And some of you are probably familiar with them, but they have a podcast, and I don't recommend it to you. Um, if you want other resources to, um, to learn about them from faithful people, I can recommend some things to you. But the deconstructionist heresy looks at 1 Corinthians 15, and they say, hey, you know, if Paul says the gospel is Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried three days later, he resurrected according to the scriptures, then how can it be before Jesus died that he came preaching the gospel? Perhaps you've wrestled with that question. Perhaps you've scratched your head and wondered, yeah, What's he talking about? If the gospel is death, burial, and resurrection, we have to keep in mind that the gospel is far more reaching than just that. It included his perfect life. And by the way, just because Jesus went out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days, don't discount the 30 years prior where he never sinned. He was tempted before then too, never sinned for his parents, never rebelled as a teenager. Never did all the things that we think of as parents whenever you're trying to rear children and you think, why can't they just get over this thing? Those are just like you. That's why. They're sinners. And Jesus resisted temptation all 33 years he was on this earth. But the deconstructionists look at this and they say, how can Jesus come preaching about something that hasn't happened yet? the death, burial, and resurrection, but they forget to deal with the the vicarious perfect life that he had to live. Paul is dealing with a core of salvific faith in 1 Corinthians 15. He's not defining all aspects of the gospel. We'll revisit that a little bit in a moment. But he says the time is fulfilled, and he tells them that the kingdom is at hand. And the kingdom is the answer to the deconstructionists because the gospel runs throughout the entire Old Testament. Galatians 4 uses the same language or similar language in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's the gospel. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son so that we could be adopted as sons. 
Ephesians 1 uses similar language as well. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, there's the gospel, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. Then Mark, Mark chooses a word, two words for time that could have been chosen, and he chooses the word kairos instead of the word chronos. And chronos would be like one of these, a chronograph. Like the old pastor would lay his watch up here and somebody asked his mom, what does that mean? And she said, absolutely nothing. Um, but this is a chronometer. That word that marks time, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, and so forth. Mark doesn't use that word. He uses kairos because he's pointing out a time, a season, an opportunity. It was a crisis moment in human history. In the fullness of time. When time was right, when God said, now, I'm going to create a fulcrum. In history, the cross, Christ, and his birth became the fulcrum of history. Today, we mark our time by before Christ and after Christ. And there's all kinds of scoffers out there who want to change the language to before the common era and the common area, common area, common era. And I ask you, where does one stop and the other begin? At the birth of Christ. In the fullness of time. Even the scoffers who try to get away from it can't stop the fact that there is a division between the two. The Old Testament was teaching us all about the promise of a Redeemer and his kingdom to come. And this, too, is part of the gospel. There's a prominent false theology out there that the kingdom is utterly future. And I just wonder, how can you read your Bible and come to that conclusion? A central point of the New Testament was that the kingdom of God had come. There are aspects of the kingdom, of course, that still have to be realized. They have yet to be realized, but Jesus told his hearers, the kingdom was upon them. And so we see the kingdom inaugurated. The kingdom of God has come. But what is Jesus talking about? Again, it makes us pause. And if you're a Jew, you have to stop and think. One of Jesus' first hearers, what do you mean the kingdom of God? We're Jewish. We are the kingdom of God. We're Abraham's seed. Mark doesn't make any attempt to explain here, which is something of an explanation in itself because his letter goes on to explain in total. But Luke helps out somewhere. Uh, excuse me, Luke helps, out, helps us out some on this matter. In chapter 4, he says, And he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. You remember the story. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he's going to quote from Isaiah 61. That's critical to this point. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And that had just happened. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, the gospel, to the poor. Not to those who don't need a physician, but the sick. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled, past tense, in your hearing. I want to make two observations here. First of all, 
As I've said, Mark was a new genre of gospel, and he was writing to people that would have only known scriptures as the Old Testament. But they would have also understood that the theme of that Old Testament, those body of books, was about a king and a kingdom to come. There was this common thread that ran from Genesis all the way through the end that there was a redeemer and his kingdom, this promise of God for a redeemer and his kingdom. And after 400 years of silence, the long-awaited redemption of God's people from their sins and reconciliation with the Father by the work of Messiah followed by the consummation of his promised kingdom was upon them according to what Jesus had said. So they would have understood completely that this Redeemer and this kingdom had come upon them according to the word of Christ and the testimony of the Father that that is my Son and the Spirit having shown the three-in-one, the Trinity of God. But not only that, as I mentioned, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61. And as you know, Isaiah 60 through 66 is about the millennial kingdom, which is synonymous with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, sometimes characterized in our day as the church age. They're all the same kingdom. And Jesus says to his audience, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He doesn't say some future kingdom. Today, the millennial kingdom that Isaiah prophesied about has been initiated. Jesus is saying that the kingdom that will include people not just from Israel, but from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people has commenced. It is upon you. It's as though he's saying, my ecclesia, my called out body of believers, my church, so to speak, the kingdom has arrived. And, he, and John says, but you're not ready. You need to repent. And Jesus echoes, you need to repent and believe the gospel. From Isaiah 42, 9, behold, the former things, that Old Testament way of doing things has come to pass and new things I now declare. Old has passed away. Repent and believe God's good news, he says. We've already talked about how scandalous it was that John the Baptist was calling Israelites to repentance. Here, Jesus picks up the message from John and carries it on. Jesus is saying, believe me. I've been anointed by the Spirit. My Father has testified of me, and I testify of myself. Two witnesses. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. Repent, serve me, believe. I am fulfilling all righteousness. I am defeating Satan. I am proclaiming liberty to captives. I am providing sight to the blind. Go tell John in prison. He's having a weak moment of faith. Tell him what you see, just as Isaiah prophesied I would. I'm setting at liberty those who are oppressed. I am proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. The kingdom of God is upon you. Prepare yourselves. So why is the gospel the gospel? Why is it good news? Well, we see Jesus as the Son fulfilling all righteousness. That's the anointing of Christ. He fulfilled our righteousness that we could not do. He defeated an enemy that we could not defeat in the person of Satan. That's the testing of the Christ from which he came forth. And finally, as a submissive messenger, Jesus offered reconciliation from God, the message from God, reconciliation to God, the message of the Christ. That's why the gospel is the gospel. He fulfilled all righteousness. He defeated Satan. And he offered reconciliation with the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.21 synopsizes it so well. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And this is the gospel in one verse. As I studied for this message, I wanted to try to see how many things I could, I could list without doing an exhaustive study or reading 1,200 pages of commentaries, but just what I know about Scripture. What does the gospel include? And I came up with this list, and I hope you'll have things you could add to it. The forgiveness of sins, reconciliation and peace with the Father, the seal of the Spirit living within you, sonship with God the Father, brotherhood with Jesus Christ, a knowledge of the truth. How significant is that, that God has revealed his truth to you? He has given you his truth, and many of your neighbors he has not. He's chosen you, and not because you deserved it, but he opened your eyes, he unstopped your ears, and he granted you repentance and faith, knowledge of the truth. Abolition of the inadequate system of sacrifice. Oh, woe to us if we had to become proselytes of Israel. Woe to us if we had to go join Israel to be right with God and, and be baptized and repent in such a way that we decided to obey the Mosaic law. Unification of Jews and Gentiles into one body where once there was one nation that owned the truth. And all the other nations were deceived by the devil. And at the coming of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, God has bound Satan in such a way that Gentiles now are able to see the truth. You're no longer deceived, those of you who are not of the house of Israel, because you really are Abraham's seed according to Galatians, Romans, Colossians, Ephesians. How about death without sting? Citizenship in the kingdom of God, fellowship with other citizens in the kingdom, the support that you give each other. Oh my, if you had to rely on the world, but you each rely on those with the Spirit of God. Promises of eternal glory, resurrection to eternal life, rulership with Christ. I decided not to go further, but those were just things that came to mind in short order. Finally, briefly, last blank on your outline there. Why is the gospel the gospel? Well, because as John Piper wrote very well, God is the gospel. God is the gospel. And I wanted to close by just reading you a few excerpts from the introduction to his book, God is the Gospel. The Bible teaches that the best and final gift of God's love is the enjoyment of God's beauty. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He carries on, the best and final gift of the Gospel is that we gain Christ. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things <coughs> and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is the all-encompassing gift of God's love through the gospel to see and savor the glory of Christ forever. If the enjoyment of God himself is not the final and best gift of love, then God is not the greatest treasure. His self-giving is not the highest mercy. The gospel is not the good news that sinners may enjoy their maker. Christ did not suffer to bring us to God, and our souls must look beyond him for satisfaction. Let that sink in a little. In another place, he says, when I say that God is the gospel, I mean that the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel without which no other gift would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. Christ himself, not his gifts, will be the supreme pleasure of heaven. In other places he rebukes us. 
for looking forward so much to all the things that we will enjoy in heaven, but not face to face with God himself. God is the gospel. Seeing his beauty will be the greatest joy. I was so rebuked when I thought about all the things that I want in eternity. And somewhere down the list was, oh yeah, I get to be with God. What was me? May the church of Jesus Christ say with increasing intensity, the Lord is my chosen portion with my, and my cup. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We would rather be always, excuse me, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. I hope you're challenged this morning by the passage and the goodness of God in the gospel. I hope you'll go home and ponder the gospel and what it means to you in your life. The gospel, we think, sometimes is for the unbelievers, but that's not so. The gospel permeates everything we teach, preach, believe, and live The gospel is the source of it, the good news that belongs to God, that he sent his son to come and redeem a people. He not only died for us, but he lived for us so that he could offer up in our place vicariously a perfect life, a perfect death, and offer us resurrection just as he resurrected. Father, Would you work in our hearts to understand and believe the truths that you've stated? Even as believers, we struggle so often to understand exactly many things that you've taught. But would you be gracious enough to expand our understanding of the gospel, of your truth, of all the things it entails? And would you change our hearts to be able to see the beauty of Christ and your beauty, and to love that first and foremost. In Jesus' name, amen.